From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When patients lack decision-making capacity, physicians turn to surrogates on their behalf. Proxies designated by the patient have a stronger claim to make decisions for the patient than other people. However, who decides for the patient when no surrogate has been appointed by the patient? Typically, the patient's family is enlisted and disagreements can ensue. Here to explain how this delicate situation can be navigated are two bioethicists from Upstate Medical University's Department of Bioethics and Humanities, Dr. Thomas Curran, who also worked in neonatal intensive care, and Robert Olick, who also teaches courses in medical ethics and health law to medical students. Both are members of Upstate University Hospital's Ethics Consult Service. Thank you both for being here. Good morning, Kay. Amber. So let's give a quick explanation of the Ethics Consult Service. So, uh, Amber, the Ethics Consult Service, is it's a consult that anybody can call. So family members, staff members, physicians, unlike other consults in the hospital, which have to be physician to physician. So this is a service that's set up so that anyone can uh, enlist it. We are available uh, 365 days a year from 830 to 5. You just uh, contact the operator and uh, one of the ethics consultants uh, will show up on site and evaluate the situation to provide guidance. Uh, there are six of us in total at this point and uh, we cover the community campus as well as upstate's downtown campus and Krause Hospital. Uh, and in addition to that, once a month all the consultants get together and we re review uh, all the consults that have taken place as a quality control measure. Uh, Okay, you said you um, arrive and provide guidance, so it's not like you arrive and make the decision. You don't fix the conflict. Rob? That, that's absolutely correct. So uh, ethics consultants are advisory. Uh, we make recommendations, um, but our primary focus is to try to help people to resolve disagreements and uh, clarify misunderstandings. Um, in the typical case, the authority to make decisions uh, continues to reside within the privacy of the doctor, patient, and family relationship. Uh, and hopefully our advice is helpful uh, in various respects, but it's their decision um, to work out. Okay, well, very good. We like yeah. to say that we are not the ethics police. Okay, <laughs> good. Yes. Well, um, I understand you've got uh, some cases that you can talk about. That sure. Well, uh, today we were hoping to talk about a situation that arises when uh, a patient loses decisional capacity and is not appointed a surrogate decision maker and how to kind of to wade through that situation. So I was just going to, I've de-identified uh, an old case that we've done uh, and I'll just set the table with that and we can talk about the case and, and some of the pitfalls that arose in this case. So uh, uh, it was an 83-year-old female who had uh, lots of chronic illness, type 2 diabetes, chronic heart failure, uh, and was admitted with uh, cellulitis at the hospital. While she was in the hospital, uh, she had a cardiac arrest and experienced um, a severe uh, central nervous system brain damage, and in addition to that, uh, her kidneys failed. She had a multiple-week trial of dialysis, which was unsuccessful, and she went on to develop end-stage renal disease. And so here's this woman in the hospital. Um, she's had a serious neurologic injury. She's uh, had multiple organ system failure, and she had no health care proxy or uh, no one appointed to make surrogate decisions for her, and she needed decisions to be made for sure. her. So she had, uh, what she did have was two sons uh, who uh, we uh, were approached to serve as surrogates via New York State legislation uh, through the Family Health Care Decisions Act. And so uh, anytime you have uh, more than one surrogate, <clears throat> 
different people can have different opinions and it just becomes complicated. So it certainly speaks to the importance of designating healthcare proxy while you still have decisional capacity so people can respect your wishes. In this case, we, you do the best you can, you talk to the sons. Uh, and if I, I'll let Rob talk about the, our interaction with the sons. Right, so um, in, in a case like this, it, many times it's clear that the patient lacks capacity to make their own decisions, but it's always important to ask whether perhaps it's borderline and whether there's anything that the uh, healthcare team could do to restore the patient's capacity because part of respecting the patient's autonomy is looking for opportunities to potentially restore their capacity and let them make their own decisions. Um, here, as Tom was saying, in the absence of a healthcare proxy appointment, we have two sons, mm -hmm. and under our existing law in New York, um, they have co-equal authority. Um, two adult children have the same authority. It's not like there's a mechanism for choosing one over the other um, in if ordinary had, circumstances. Or based on birth, who's the older or whatever, they're well, both being, equal. Be, being a firstborn, I think it should be the firstborn, but it is not. Right. <laughs> Everyone okay. gets that, equal that, that might be uh, good within the family, but if the patient doesn't decide that for themselves, um, mm -hmm. then the law doesn't give us any guidance on that. Um, if there so, were a spouse, would the spouse take precedence? Yes. Okay. So in order of priority under the Family Health Care Decisions Act, uh, again, if there's no written appointment of someone else, uh, the spouse would be first on the okay. list. Uh, and then or domestic partner. Or domestic partner, correct. Um, and then adult children would be next. Okay. So um, it's not uncommon that we get uh, adult children um, who don't agree. Now, first and foremost, their obligation is to try to make the decision that their parent would make uh, for themselves. Uh, they may disagree about that, or it may be that they don't know that much about what their parent would want, um, or they may have different views about what's best uh, for the parent. Uh, and so disagreement uh, between family members would be a, a fairly common situation where we as ethics consultants would be called in to try to explore the issues and, and help. Uh, to help to resolve those disagreements. Okay, yeah. I bet I bet that happens quite a bit. I can imagine. Uh, I think our experience is pretty typical of the national experience in that um, most ethics consultants deal with uh, issues near the end of life, and of those, um, more often than not, they involve patients who lack capacity to make their own decisions, and have family members who are not in agreement about what to do. The one you see in the newspapers um, is, you know, life support. Do we pull life support or whatever? Mm -hmm. um, so, and those are polar opposites. One who says yes, one who says no. How do you reach, I, I mean, you can't really compromise on that, right? I, I mean, how do you get them to? Well, I think that the, uh, what, where we see our role in that situation is, uh, in, in, in relative to this case in particular, was what, the, the two sons wanted to continue with aggressive therapy uh, for their mother with and the, and so we want to know well why is that because this is a person who's really really sick who's never going to have any meaningful recovery what, what, what are your thoughts is it because that's what mom wanted and she told you or is there some other rationale and when we explored this case further they were hoping that mom would um, go to a rehab facility recover and go back to her previous life so what they, but essentially what they had was a, a false belief. And so our, our, our role in that situation is to 
uh, attempt to help them understand the gravity of the situation by facilitating communication between the medical team uh, and, 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 the, and the two sons so that they can have a more realistic view of what's happening here. And, and in addition to that, um, anyone who's lost a parent knows that there is no good time to lose a parent. And so there's an element of personal grieving that each individual brings to the table in this where they're, they're thinking, not in a selfish way they're not thinking about themselves, but they're in their own grieving process and uh, they need, it's helpful for them to be reminded that their role in this situation is not to select what they would want, but rather for them to facilitate selecting what they think their mother or their parent would want in this situation. And a lot of times, just kind of uh, uh, unpeeling that situation brings some clarity to the, the surrogates and allows them to have uh, a, an, an epiphany or, or a change of heart. In this particular case, that was not the case. Um, and that happens too, where they, they were just, they were just the, the, the son said, look, we, we're hoping for a miracle, we want to continue. Uh, and so we really were at... A, despite a, knowing the facts of the case. Despite knowing the facts. And yeah. in all fairness, um, medicine is an inexact science. And so sure. you can never say, this is what's going to happen. All, all the medical care team can do is say, here's, here's where we are, here's where we think we're headed, and here's what we think is the most likely outcome. So um, there is always that element of uncertainty. Uh, in this case, um, I, w there was a kind of a funny development, or an interesting development uh, right. uh, that occurred after our initial meeting with the sons. Yeah, so as Tom was describing, this situation where uh, the two sons were in agreement about what they wanted, but were in disagreement with the healthcare team and the doctor's recommendation is another common kind of conflict oh, okay. um, between the family decisions, family autonomy, and what the doctors recommend is in the patient's best interest. And uh, to emphasize the point, we tell family members that first and foremost, their obligation is to try to make the decision that their loved one would make um, for herself. Uh, and in this case, what surfaced was a living will, uh, which is a document that um, sets forth someone's wishes. Um, but in contrast to a healthcare proxy, a living will does not appoint someone to make decisions for you. Uh, and therefore, uh, again, the two sons were at equal level of authority uh, in decision-making and would, would really need to agree. So they were agreeing here, but if they should come to disagreement, it would be another kind of dilemma uh, because neither had been designated by the healthcare proxy. Um, but they should be guided very strongly by what is known about um, their parents' wishes, and the living will is very strong evidence uh, of that. So that reinforced what the sons were doing or wanted to do? And actually, the living will, the sons didn't know about the living will. The living will came from a friend who, was, who had been oh. visiting, this, and the friend said, she gave, we talked about this. She, she knew. She should have been the healthcare proxy, but that's another story. Right. The, uh, and she said, here's the living will, where then the living will specifically stated that if I was unable to have any chance of meaningful recovery, I don't want to have mechanical ventilation, and I don't want to have artificial nutrition and hydration. So very, very specific. Very specific directive of, as far as you could tell, what her wishes were. And so this, that was the, the piece of information that allowed the sons to have clarity of thought with regards to what would mom want 
here was a document where she stated what she would have wanted in that situation. And as Rob stated, although the living will um, uh, in New York State in particular does not have the same authority as a health care proxy, in this case it helped uh, bring some light to the to answer the question okay. as to what the patient would want in this dire situation. So it's not a legal document, or, or is it? I guess it is a legal document, a living will, but... Yeah, so it is, uh, and so so two points on that. Um, so as Tom was sort of suggesting, um, maybe um, in this case the patient should have picked her friend and made her the healthcare proxy. Um, and you can choose basically anybody you want who you trust as long as they're over 18 years of age. So it doesn't okay. have to be a family member. Um, the living will um, is a legal document. Um, it carries important weight as evidence of the patient's wishes. But it's considered to be of less uh, legal status, so to speak, because it's not recognized by statute in New York. Mm -hmm. It's been recognized in case law, um, but not in statute. New York is one of only three states in the country that has legislation recognizing only the healthcare proxy and not both the healthcare proxy and the living will. Um, and another factor that one would consider and that we would look at in a case like this would be when was the document written, how long ago, how specific is it? Um, how well does it fit the current circumstances as guidance of the patient's wishes? Um, and has the patient said anything to anyone else, like her sons or family members, um, about her wishes that was just a verbal communication that, and measure whether that's consistent or inconsistent uh, with the written document? If the living will surfaced and it contradicted what the sons wanted to do? Would the living will have any power in New York? Well, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, and and I, I would say the answer is yes. Um, because again, the first and foremost, the obligation both of the family and of the healthcare team is to try to ascertain and to honor the patient's own wishes. Um, but in a circumstance like that, we would again get into a conversation about, well, here's the living will. What does it say? When was it written? Were there intervening conversations that would suggest a way to interpret it and suggest whether the patient had changed her mind? Um, and then we uh, also ask the question, well, are, are the sons advancing um, a different view of what their mother would want, or are they advancing a view um, of their own? Um, that reflects their own um, uh, views and uh, perhaps the stress of making the decision and, and, and so forth. And I think the reason Rob hesitated is because we try and avoid that at all costs, coming to loggerheads between one document and circuit healthcare decision makers, because when that occurs, everyone will agree it becomes a mess. It typically goes legal. It's a night. It's just you. And so in this case, these sons, they were loving sons. And when they saw this living will, and we talked about it, they loved their mother, and they wanted to honor what their mother wanted. And that's what happens almost all the time. It's very rare. That's why I said before, we're not the police, and we're not here to say, you know, this document trumps what you say, because here, it's not like that. You, 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 it's, a, it's a delicate touch to uh, help the surrogate decision makers see um, in a sensitive way what their mother had hoped for. And, and in this instance, that's exactly how it played out. When, they, when the son saw this, they came around to understand their, 
the role as a surrogate decision maker, the honor involved in that, the importance of not of not making it about you, and doing the and doing what they would honor what their mother would want it, and it it was actually, it, it started off kind of a little contentious, but ended up being very um, a very healthy and a loving conclusion to the situation. Well, the way you describe living, well, it sounds like um, that's something that a person does not for themselves, but for their survivors, if it can help answer those questions or put them at ease or... Exactly. Although, as I'm sure Rob would agree, the, the, the limitation of the living will is it's, it's an if this, if this, then that document. You, can, you can't foresee all the different possibilities sure. of what can happen. That's where a healthcare proxy can work on the fly with the facts as they come across. Right. It absolutely is a strong argument for uh, designating a healthcare proxy uh, or alternatively a living will that it serves the purpose of not only um, projecting your autonomy into the future and having your wishes honored, but relieving some of the burdens of decision-making on family members. Very good. This has been very interesting. I appreciate it. My guests have been bioethicists Dr. Thomas Curran and Robert Olick. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.